Now at Top Golf, you get half off golf Monday through Wednesday when you book in the app. It could be any Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. Like this Monday, next Tuesday, and the following Wednesday. Or maybe this Wednesday, next Tuesday, and the Monday after that. Basically, any Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday is a good day, as long as you spend it at Top Golf. It's golf. It's half off. It's half off golf. Monday through Wednesday when you book in the app for a limited time only. So download the Top Golf app, book a bay, and come play around. Restrictions and exclusions may apply. Visit topgolf.com slash halfoffgolf for details. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. day the paintings were unveiled my mom called and she said mm, i don't like the color of michelle obama's skin yeah. and i was like mom that's what amy cheryl does and she's like mm, i don't like it and yeah i'm like a lot of people did a lot of i'd say so, a lot of black people didn't right, right. <laughs> so so take me back to now i'm conceiving this mm-hmm. and i'm gonna go with my skin choice that's why she chose me i didn't force that on her <laughs> she she knew that you were going to give her that gray black. Absolutely. That's why I Did you talk about that choice specifically? You were yeah, like Yeah, it wasn't even a real conversation. It was like I like your work and I want you to be the one to paint me and I'm like, "Well, this is how I paint." She's like, "That's what we want." They chose us for a reason. They chose us because there's like this break in history right now. Yes. And everybody needs to know this happened and these portraits have to be as special as the moment. Because it may not ever happen again. I am so excited for this episode. I've been waiting to do this interview for a year and a half, and finally it's here. My homegirl, Amy Sherald, is a major league portrait painter who painted the official portrait of the First Lady Michelle Obama. It's hanging in the National Portrait Gallery right now. Before that commission, Amy was a big name in the art world, but now she's a crossover star with fans who weren't even into art that much before, but they love her, they're inspired by her, and with good reason. She's an awesome person, a great painter, and a former rapper. We're going to get into that. She's going to rap a little, and it's amazing. Before we go too far, a little housekeeping, because Torre Show is about to go into a new chapter. The Patreon era starts now. We're producing two episodes a week now, dropping on Wednesday and Friday, but the Friday apps will be exclusive to Patreon, so you got to pay $5 a month to get those Patreon-exclusive apps. Coming up on the Patreon side, we're going to have Sheila E., Joy Bryant, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Morris Day, and more. Go to patreon.com slash show. That's patreon.com slash show, And you'll be able to get in the Friday Patreon exclusives. Also starting next week on Wednesdays, our free listeners will get 30 minutes of my Wednesday interviews, while Patreon listeners will get the full 60 or 70 or 80, however long minutes of the Wednesday shows. Coming up on the Wednesday side, we got David Allen Greer, the author Ed Weech Danticott, 
and a crazy one with Dame Dash. I can't wait for you to hear that. So our Patreon supporters will get the full Friday exclusives and the full 60 minutes of our Wednesday apps. Our team is growing. There's five people working on the show now. We're ready to give you more. So here it comes. Join us at patreon.com slash show to get the best of Torrey show. And if you can join on the $20 tier while it's still open, you get to suggest questions and guests. And if I choose your question, I'll say your name on the show as I ask the question. Speaking of the show, let's get back to today's guest, the incomparable Amy Sherald, a woman who's a brilliant painter with an amazing sense of color. And we're going to talk about that and her process and the whole story of how she went to the White House, met with Michelle and Barack, and ended up getting the commission of a lifetime not long after she was broke. Amy is also a woman who's walking around with someone else's heart in her body. We're going to talk about that. And she's also got a new heart figuratively, by which I mean she's deeply in love for the first time in her life, and she lights up when she talks about it. We're going to get into all that and more. It's the legendary Amy Sherald on Toray Show. So is that your last show in Manhattan? And there's this line around the block of like, especially young black and brown people who many of them seem to have never been to a show before, but like the Amy Sherald show to them is like, this is special. And you have become this sort of icon for a lot of these people who are like, you know, I mean, following the Michelle Obama painting, like, Oh my God, Amy Sherald. And like, how is that for you? Cause you, you feel that like there's all these people who are coming into art for me, like I'm a crossover star for a lot of these people. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel like it's for me. And you know, I didn't know the line was out the door until afterwards. It was so long. And I, somebody showed me a picture, and I'm like, that was downstairs, you know. But um, I don't feel like it's, it's for me. I feel like it's for the art. Mm-hmm. It's because people are hungry for it. You know what I mean? They're hungry to see themselves in ways that they've never seen themselves. Um. And I do attribute, <laughs> I can't, I, I call it the Michelle Obama effect because she just has that effect on on everybody. People love her and I feel like by default they love me and I just happen to make great work too. So that just makes it <laughs> even better. But I think there's definitely an excitement at seeing a young black woman. Yeah, for sure. Making art and yeah. being celebrated for it and they can understand the it's art. It's relatable. And it's can, reflective. Yeah. It's loving, it's kind. And the vibe that night was all love. You know, for me to see young kids there was like really special. I Mm -hmm. think as I was walking around, I was really excited to see five-year-olds, six-year-olds, eight-year-olds that they knew who I was and they wanted to take a picture with me. And those were the most touching moments because, you know, the gallery said like, we've never had this demographic in in our space before. So that was like probably the first time in the history of Hauser and Worth, and it's a global gallery. So it was a big deal, and it's time. It's time for that kind of stuff. I mean, it's time for us to be in those spaces and to feel ownership and to be reflected on walls and see ourselves and receive love back from those images. I love the work, and I want to talk about the work and really dig into it. And one of the things that really leaps out is the color choices Mm -hmm. 
it is so vibrant and yet not overwhelming. Um, Can you talk about just some of what you're trying to do there? Um, I, everything that I do is intuitive and I don't try to do it. It's just what happens when I make the work, you know? So I have an image in my head. I try to find the right clothes and then I figure out the background color and then everything kind of builds from there. But, you know, it's hard to explain because like now I work with, uh, with an assistant who helps me like mixing colors and stuff like that. And the other day I was like, I want this blue, this particular kind of blue. And I can see it in my head, but I can't communicate that color to my assistant to mix. And so she mixes it. I'm like, no, that's not the right color. And so I end up having to do it myself because I'm, it's, I'm very, very particular about it and I can't explain it. I just, I can't explain it, but I don't know whether you watch, um, do you watch The Good Place? That of course, show? of course. I and love I, The I Good love Place. The Chidi way. lives around the corner Are you kidding? for me. Oh so I God. see him once in a while. I'm like, oh my friend. God. I love him. Um, when uh, they describe color or taste, I think, I think one of the flavors of the yogurt was like, when your cell phone battery is charged. You know what I mean? So like everybody knows what that feeling is. And like, I feel like if I could describe my colors, it would be something like that. You know what I mean? Because it's an emotion attached to it as well. And it's, and I I don't think I realized how specific it was until I had to work with somebody to help me. And I say, do this. And they're like, nope, that's, it's something that only I can do. And yet, so the colors are like vibrant and they really work on the eyes. And yet yeah. all the black people are this gray. dark gray, the same color over and over. Yeah. Why are you doing that? You know, that story has changed over the past decade. <laughs> okay. So it starts off with because I thought it looked cool. It then graduated to five years later, you know, because I'm not walking into the studio with a whole bunch of words in my head. Um it's like you make some work, you look back at it, and you have conversations with people, and you're like, you know, that really makes sense. Um, so for me, when I look back, it was because I was, um, I think, not wanting the work to be marginalized in a way that would um, corner it into a, a certain conversation about Blackness and identity. Um And so I think I was struggling with that because I knew I was painting Black bodies, and I know Black bodies are political, and I know just because they're hanging in museum institutions, that's a political statement in itself, but I didn't want the conversation to be solely about identity. And so I I was saying then that subconsciously, I think that's why I was drawn to do that. Um, but for this exhibition, I, I never have time to read when I'm making work, but I read the first chapter of Kevin Kwashi's book, The Sovereignty of Quiet. And I really think that subconsciously again, um, that it's really about the interiority of who we are. And so we have this codified existence of identity, like how the world consumes us. And then we have our own nuanced selves. And I think that become the, it becomes a, our, our real selves become a shadow of who we really are because we're constantly bombarded with these images in the media of like this, these, uh, the, the bigger idea of who we are is like black people, the stereotypes and all that. So I really feel like it's about the interior and the interior doesn't really have any color. You know, the interior is a different experience. Mm-hmm. And um, 
nobody really knows about our interior life except for us. And we share who we are with each other in these very intimate spaces. Um, and so after reading that, I started to think of it in that way. You know, it's not really a removal of color. It's just about dealing with the insides and the spiritual aspects of who we are versus the, what he calls like a public identity. Like it's our private, our private selves, if that makes sense. Mm. It does make sense. So what do you, just overall, what do you think you're saying about black people through the work? I see a lot of dignity, yeah, a lot of beauty, um, but what are you trying to convey? I think that's it. I mean, I think I, I grew up looking at images that were like that, that were people in my family, that were my grandmother, that were my great-grandmother. Um, and when you look at older photographs, I mean, we're dressed up, you know, like it's a different kind of feeling. Like you don't get that same aesthetic in 2020 as you did when you take a photograph in 1935, right. on, on mom's now. age. And so, yeah. And there was a lot of, um, um, you know, when we were able to have ourselves photographed, there was a sense of self-satisfaction and dignity and, you know, presentation. And I think that's part of what it is. And I think the reason that I ventured into this, these ideas is because I felt like there wasn't enough of these kinds of, these kinds of images out there. You know, I felt like everything that I ran into was political and there was a part of me that was developing as a human being, not as a black person, but just as a human and as a, as a woman who wanted to release myself from race and gender and religion and all those things that we are, you know, that are pushed into our face and we're told who we are. Like my mom told me who to worship. She told me what my life was going to be like because I was a, a black girl, you know, first day of school. She said, this is what they're going to think of you. This is how you have to act. These are the rules of life for you as a young black person, you know? So you grow up with a lot of heaviness that most kids don't have to deal with. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like my niece is six years old. She already knew she was different by six. My friend Dana, her son, Josh, he's white. He is 11 and he's like, what is black? Like, you know what I mean? Like he's so free in his mind and like Karis has already learned, learned the rules of race, you know, and you know, she's a young girl. So I wanted to feel free from that. And I wanted to, and maybe this was because, you know, I was on my way to getting a heart transplant, not knowing what my life was going to be like, like living for 10 years, thinking that it could be over in 10 years. Um, But I wanted to get down to the essence of who I really was as a person without all of the noise of that public identity without all of the um, reactionary emotions that we have to walk around with every day because it's exhausting. And also without the guilt of feeling like I'm leaving behind my people, you Mm -hmm. know, because we're, you know, I'm, you, you have multiple experiences all at the same time. You know what I mean? Based off of like what I see on the news, it's like, Mm -hmm. I'm, um, deeply hurt by um, maybe the death of a, a young black child. And at the same time, I'm working through my own existential feelings of like um, the privileges that I have 
because I was able to receive an education and the freedom to kind of um, self-evaluate and search for these answers that are floating around the universe of like, you know, like just to be able to ask those kinds of questions and not have to worry about surviving on a daily basis, you know? So I think those paint, my paintings represent that freedom in that. And if you don't have um, the capacity in your life to um, live that way, you can come to that work, you can come to the paintings and you can find a resting place for a moment. You know what I mean? Like everything in your life doesn't have to be, um, about contention in that moment. You can see a reflection of yourself that speaks to your inner person, if that makes sense. It is. They are calming. Despite this explosion of color, Mm -hmm. I get a sense of calm. Yeah. And I'm just in a communion with a person who's just standing there calm in themselves, like they're settled in themselves. They're not stressed. They're not running. Um, so I do see some of what you're talking about and that communion that I can have of like, this is not the painful black experience. This is the self-care yeah. part of it. Right? And historical pleasure is okay. You know yeah. what I mean? Like we have to somehow turn that around for our kids. We have to translate that trauma into pleasure and they have to learn that as well. You know what I mean? What were you told? What was the received wisdom about being black? You talk about your mom telling you, this is what it means to be a black girl. Yeah. Um, I mean, for us, it was about behavior. You know, my father was one of the only black doctors in the city. So like everybody knew who me and my sister, my brother, everybody knew who we were Um, going into a kindergarten classroom as the only black child was, and as a like self-conscious introverted child was like traumatizing in itself. Hmm. Um, But you've, it was really just about like, if you do this, they're going to look at you this way. Like if you talk loud in class, they're going to look at you one way. If another student talks loud in class, they're not going to react the same way. Don't perpetuate the stereotypes. Right. It's that, I mean, it's like, but then you're like, what's the stereotype? I'm five. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? And so it's <laughs> it's really interesting because like, you- My dad was like, don't return your library books late. That's what they expect of you. Like, yeah. What? All of that. <laughs> okay. All of that. Don't yeah. run in the mall because they'll think you stole something. Like, well, okay. Yeah. Okay. Every, everything. And it, it might've been different for my brother than it was for me because I'm a, you know, because I'm a, um, I was a girl, but- um. Yeah, I just became very aware, you know, that every that I was different. How much of the work is planned and how much of it is discovered in the midst of working through it? Mm. I guess the majority of it is planned. But the process of making the photograph is organic and obviously finding the people is I, you could consider that organic too, because I I just happen to see people walking around, you know. So um, if I don't see anybody for two months, then I don't have anybody to paint for two months, you know. Because it it's it's I think the the people that I find are the reason why the paintings sit the way they do, like that the reason why they feel the way that they do. There's something that they carry inside of them that I'm able to translate, but their clothes. And all of that, um, I do have clothes that I buy that I would like to use for a painting, and then I have to find the person 
So I could have an outfit for a year and then all of a sudden I'm like, this person could wear that and it'd be perfect. Mm. Or the person's walking down the street and I'm like, this person has on the perfect outfit. But color choices and backgrounds are um, the one thing that I, I think I let happen organically and could change in the process of the painting. If I decide something's not working, then everything changes. Mm-hmm. So y- you start with s- seeing somebody just randomly mm-hmm. and say, or an outfit. Yeah. And then say, okay, let's shoot that person. Yeah. Do they, do they come to the studio or can you just do it on the street? They come to the studio. So you speak to them and say. Yeah, I'm like, hey, so, you know, I know this is weird, but this is, I want, I would like to paint you. This is my website. Um, it'll only take an hour. I try to like, you know, let them know it's not going to take a long time. You'll get like this much money for it. And are people more saying, oh, I know who you are? Or is it still like, hi, I'm Amy Sherald. I'm not weird. I'm an actual, I'm a painter. You yeah, can trust me. it depends. Sometimes uh, they know who I am, but, and then sometimes they don't, but then they realize they did. And sometimes they don't know at all. And I don't really like talk a lot about it. I'm just like, this is what I do. And. I don't, I'm not like, hey, so right. I painted Michelle and I would like to paint you too. <laughs> um, no, that's, not a bad, that's not a bad opening. Yeah. So you photograph me and then what happens? And then I proceed to figure out the background color based off of what you have on. And then I paint the canvas, the color of the background. And then I draw the figure onto the color with charcoal so that I can work and rework it, like, because charcoal wipes off, and then I start the painting. But by that time, I figured out the the palette of the whole piece. So the colors may change, but the pose never does change, because once I capture that pose through the viewfinder, then that's that's it. And that could take me up to an hour, depending on, like, how comfortable they are. And because the paintings are so simple, and I don't paint people like, hey, like hands in the air or whatever. So it's like, I really have to focus on building like a psychological tension with these little movements and little things like your, you know, your hand might be in a fist and I might like move your finger up like a quarter of a centimeter, like just to create mid motion kind of movement, even though the rest of the body is still. Mm -hmm. But I think those things are highly legible when you look at the work. What's the hardest part of the body or the face to do? The face is easy. I feel like you put a lot of effort into noses. Yeah. Like pretty much every other painting, I make one of the eyes higher than the other by accident. Mm. (laughs) And then I have to go back and fix it because I just like get into it. And then I forget to look at what I'm doing. That would be very Picasso. And then I'm like, you know, then I have to ask everybody in the studio, like, come look at this. Do you see anything wrong? Because then I'm too lazy to really change it. (laughs) But you're and talking about was, like a, a millimeter off. Yeah, it's like a millimeter like that. But sometimes it's just enough. Because if their head isn't tilted, if their head's tilted, I can kind of get away with it. Because sure. everybody's face isn't symmetrical. Right. But I tend to paint them symmetrically because if somebody's nostril, one nostril is bigger than the other and I paint it that way, then people think that I drew it wrong. Right. So I try to, so everybody gets a little plastic surgery. <laughs> um, or what do you, what would you call that? Like paintbrush surgery. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but, but yeah, so those eye, are the... The eye, a lot of other people have said to me, the eye is a particular challenge because it's such a focal point. Yeah. Um, because it's such a, it's so expressive. Yeah. Right? I, I mean, is that true for you or you're like, no, the eye's easy? I think they're easy. 
I think they're hard when I'm not painting the right person, though. Because mm. if I can feel their spirit in it, then I can then I can get that to come out of the eyes. You know, there's some paintings like if you go to the National Portrait Gallery, there's some paintings in there that are dead. Like you look at them and they're just they're it's just color on a canvas. Like that's it. You know, the eyes are dead. And it's not even that it's not painted well. It just doesn't have any living energy in it. And I don't know how some paintings end up with that living energy and how some paintings don't. But you can see the difference. You don't know how? I don't know how. I just know I see it. You know you see it, but you yeah. don't know how. You and it doesn't have to difference? be realistically painted because Alice Neal's paintings, for example, have that living energy in them. Mm-hmm. Is and this what we see in, in the Mona Lisa, like perhaps the most famous example? That, that I saw the Mona Lisa. I was not impressed. I was not impressed either, but I wonder if it's because it's already like culturally dead to us because yeah. we've seen it a million times when we first encounter yeah. it. But the reason why it's shown all over the world is because at some point it had this energy that people are like, oh my God, the eyes Maybe follow you. so. Alive. I would have to go back and look at it again and not... So what's a lot, what's a what's a what's a famous painting that people may you know just so people may have a an idea visual reference that you say this is alive. I don't know. Like I'm thinking about this painting that I saw when I was. It's between LL Cool J and Michelle Obama at the National Portrait Gallery. The the and it's the, of the a Kehinde scientist LL Cool J yeah. painting. Uh-huh. It's oh, a, oh, oh, another one that's between. Yeah, it's between them. Okay, okay. It's a scientist. Uh, some like uh, like a bug scientist or something like that, and um, I went there. I went down there for the um, the reception for the National Portrait Gallery competition, and I was speaking to a friend of mine who had work in it, and I was telling her, "Your portraits are they they live and they breathe." And I gave her that picture as an example. But it can it doesn't it doesn't even have to be humans. It can be a landscape too. Sure. There's there's just something that. Certain artists are able to push into it that other artists aren't able to do. And I can, maybe I can find you, maybe you can like post it on the website. Like I can maybe find two images where you could kind of see that because it's really hard to describe. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting that you, you know it. I mean, as expert as you are, you know it, Mm -hmm. but you don't know how. I don't know how it works. I just know it's like when I studied with Art in Norway, he showed it to us and I, my mind was blown because it was just like two landscapes. And I'm like, how is this even possible? But this one has an eternal feeling to it. Like it's alive and this one is just painted and it's nice and it's great. And it, they're both painted at the same level of of, um, of expertise. Yeah, yeah. But this one has something that this one doesn't. So the last time we talked, you said that your waiting list is longer than your life. life yeah. Like you will since not, like 2016, you will not fulfill your waiting list. No, because it goes what it's what 60, 70 years long. Yeah, how many do you? But do some a of year? those people, you know, in the gallery world, like there's some people that will only buy work for from an emerging artist, right? So they're mm-hmm. only going to buy work from like six thousand dollars to like fifty thousand dollars, and once it reaches beyond that price point. They don't, they're it, either they're priced out or they don't want it, you know? So that list has, it's changed and. But how many do you do a year? 13, if they're all regular size, but with these larger paintings, probably 10. You can do 10 a year. Yeah. And your waiting list is what? A hundred 
or something. Probably, yeah. 200? Yeah. So does that mean that you can't really change your style? Well, honestly, I don't feel like I could anyway. I mean, I feel like once you become known for something, that's what people want. (laughs) You know, so Coca-Cola can't change the flavor of Coke. It's like Coke. People would be pissed. They don't want it, you know. And I'm not saying you should. I can develop my work. I'm not saying you should. I yeah. love your style. But there's. Certain... But I thought about that before I even got into it. Because... I mean, I think about like, I don't know, somebody like, let's say Damien Hurst. Yeah. Right? Like, there's different eras of Hurst. He does different things. That's not. He's multidisciplinary, good. though. Like, you expect that from him because he's so highly conceptual. You don't expect the same thing from him. Okay, so let's say Warhol. Right. There's there's yeah. different he, he does different things at different times. Yeah. And that is I wonder if because of the way your business has succeeded, yeah, you're like, I can't change because there's already a thousand people who want this. Yeah. And you can change if it makes sense for the work. You know, like you have to grow as a person. So you can't be controlled and controlled by the market. Um but what I do is what I do. So if I do change, it's going to be along along the lines of what I do and it's going to make sense. You know, like it made sense for Kehinde to take those paintings and make them into three-dimensional works. You know, so mm-hmm. those kinds of changes make sense. And like for me, it made sense for me to go from smaller paintings to larger paintings. But I didn't want to go to large paintings just for the sake of it. Like it had to... to um, help me tell my story in a more powerful way. You know, it had to make sense for me to make large paintings. Um, and so at this point, like when I think about my future, I don't really, I don't know how the work is going to evolve, but I know I have to continue to push myself in order to stay interested in what I'm doing. Mm. And I know that I could, I say this now, but I know that I could say, for example, never be an abstract painter. It's just too hard for me to leave things undone. So I think the figure is is like is that's what I do. And so you see me go from um, speckled backgrounds to flat color backgrounds to you know beach scenes. And so that's what's changing right now is that I'm you know on with these larger works I'm able to create these different narratives and these different kinds of scenes and people and. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't think I will change so much so that you won't be able to look at it and not know that I did it. I mean, you are, but who knows? You were already a noted portraitist before you met, uh, the first lady. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to me that you say you couldn't be, uh, an abstractionist because at least to me, your color choices are so interesting that even if there was no figure and it was just Amy making a color statement, mm-hmm. I would be like, this is amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know I mean? And and the portrait choices are equally amazing. I think it's how I see it though. Because I see work and I'm like, I could never let that sit. Like you have to know when something is finished. How do you know when it's finished? For me, it's like, because it's, it's just done. Like I can't, <laughs> you know, like I've tightened up all the lines. I've done everything, but with... Like with a Rothko or like something like that, you know, you have to be able to leave things undone and you have to see beauty in something that's almost incomplete. Like there's a science to abstraction that I don't have the DNA for Mm. because I would overwork it, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, there's definitely a finish line to cross with the figure. 
But with anything else, I can I I can spot a beautiful abstract painting a mile away because I look for symmetry in everything. And I feel like if you're a good painter, like it's it's kind of there, even if it's just in your color choices and building a foreground, middle ground, and a background. But I don't think I could leave it on like. I have natural hair and it's, you, you can't, and I try to perfect it. Right. So like, that would be me as an abstract painter. Like I wake up in the morning, my Afro is smushed to one side of my head <laughs> and I spend 45 minutes to an hour trying to make it look like organized chaos. Yeah. And it's like, you can't make your hair look, I mean, like, it's just, it is what it is. It's like, funky, it's kinky hair, you know? So tight, that would though. be me and like an abstract painting. Each one takes about a month. Yeah. The larger, the larger paintings took a few months. They were taxing physically. It was a lot of standing on ladders for long hours, and it was a lot. What's the schedule? Are you an afternoon painter? Um, try to get to the studio by 9, and uh, if we're not close to a deadline, then I like to be out of there by 6.30. Oh, so it's like normal yeah. working hours. I want to be home. I want to go home and like eat dinner and watch This Is Us. You know, I want to chill. <laughs> what else do you watch? That you love. Um, that show specifically and The Good Place, I just came. I know it's been on for a while, but like it's I just I just found amazing. it. Um, I do a lot of documentaries and Casual sure. on Hulu. I think it's on CBS or something, but that show Casual. Mm-hmm. Last Man on Earth. Jane the Virgin. Jane the Virgin. Yeah. And that Morris Chestnut Police show is pretty good too. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did. So part of the beauty of having an hour plus for this show is that, you know, I'm like, don't tell me the short story. Mm-hmm. Like, don't yada yada anything. Tell me the long story. Mm-hmm. So just for for posterity, so we can have this recorded down, you know, hopefully 50, 100 years later. Mm-hmm. Tell me the whole story of the Michelle Obama commission the and whole like story. yeah um well i was born in 1973 <laughs> no i'm kidding i so i won so the way the way that i see it is like my life has been a process of things falling into place mm-hmm. since i was born right mm-hmm. um and this was just another one of those things so you know, every artist comes to a point in their career where they need the next step to happen. Like they're ready for it, but they don't know how it's going to happen. And you're just like standing there at the precipice and you're like about to fall and, and into this eternal pit of like nothingness. And then the next thing pops up and it happens. So for me, that was winning the National Portrait Gallery competition. And that was something that was completely unexpected. I went down there to receive that award. I had to borrow $150 to get down there. I had like negative money in my account. I hadn't paid my rent in like four months, but I was at a residency. So they kind of let me get away with it. And I was doing the math on like, well, if I only get like honorable mention, that's $1,000. So I'm screwed. I'm going to have to be an Uber driver. If I get the $7,000 award, then I'm like, I can pay my rent back, but then I don't have enough money to get ready for the show that I have coming up. So I was like doing all the math of like what I needed in order to make it through the next six months. And I ended up winning. So like I needed every single penny of that $25,000 at one. <laughs> um, so that happened. I'm like, okay, this is great. And because of that, you know, 
that award was publicized nationally and internationally. Um, so side story, they started commissioning portraits for the president and the first lady. The National Portrait Gallery started commissioning portraits with Bill and Hillary Clinton. So towards the end of the administration, they put together a portfolio of artists and they send them over to the White House to um, the White House curator. And Michelle and Barack get to go through all of them and they shortlist five of them. So I don't know who the other artists were. Um, I don't, they, they just didn't share it. So I was asking, but I didn't know who it was. So you are called to the White House you make an appointment, you go to the White House, you get interviewed in the Oval Office. So like they're waiting for you. I was like, Both I'm all, I'm always late. I was like late for that appointment too. Oh my God. Um, oh, I was like five minutes late. So oh, they, okay. yeah. So I'm like, yeah, in my mind, I'm like, they think I have no respect, but I'm like, literally I can't be on time for anything. <laughs> um, so I walk in, the White House has the ugliest fluorescent light everywhere. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I'm a colored person, so I'm looking, I'm like, this is atrocious. But when you walk into the Oval Office, it's backlit from, like, behind the crown molding because it's, like, made for TV, you know? So the transition of the light made my brain do something weird. So for a second, and maybe it's because uh, Barack was walking towards me, and I was just like, it's really a shock to see somebody in person when you've been seeing them on TV for so long. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. Because yeah, you're yeah. like, uh, like this is, you know, it yeah. just did something to my brain. So I'm just sitting there looking at him like, wow, like you're tall and your ears look just like they do. And the character, <laughs> like he looks exactly, you know what I mean? Like they stick out. Yeah, it's so cute. So I'm like, Amy, say something, say something. And he walks up to me. It's like, hello, nice to meet you. I'm like, nice to meet you too. And I was just nervous. <laughs> that was a good Barack. Yeah. It's, I was just nervous. So Of course. Um, it just so happened that we all had on the same color. So my friend's mom had taken me shopping to like get the perfect like sheath dress. And I had on kitten heels for the first time, but they were like leopard print blue bottoms or something like that. So I had on this like sheath dress that was like a taupe brownie color. He had on that um, beige kind of suit that everybody tweeted about when he wore it. Oh, the tan? That top. Yeah, it was like tan suit. Oh. It was a little bit darker though, so I think it was a different one. And she had on like a brown dress. And he's like, oh, looks like you got the memo. <laughs> And I'm like, Memo, what? Did I forget something? You know, because you're not, you're right. like not present. Right. So anyway, we sat down, we had a conversation. Um, that was the first time I met Thelma Golden too. So that was exciting. Amazing curator. Yeah. Um, and so we just talked for 30 minutes just about, you the know. The two of you and Thelma. Yeah. Michelle, Brock, Thelma, uh, the White House curator. I think his name is Mr. Allman. I can't remember. And another woman. Um, what did you talk about? Life, like what else I did outside of painting, um, working in Baltimore City jail, community stuff, what my work meant to me, um, how I, you know, what the things that I've been thinking about when it came to her portrait. And then he was like, you know, how would you paint me? And I was like, to be honest, I never thought about it. <laughs> And she was like, no, this is for me, honey. Like, you know. So, um, you were up for both, or rather, either. 
I think so. I know that they had picked artists that could paint, that painted either men really well, which I'm assuming one of them was Kehinde, obviously, and then some artists that painted men and women. So I do men and women. So I could have painted either one of them. But I think she was um, really interested. Um, and I went there with the assumption of that it was going to be me and her. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. So, um, so yeah, I don't remember what I talked about at all. Like, I just, I just know it was that. At that moment, what were some of the thoughts that you had for the painting you might do about her? Um, well, the first thing I did when I found out, when when I was just approached with the idea, was that just look at all the pictures that she had on the internet, like so many of them. And I wanted to, I knew that I wanted to do something that felt more private because that's the beautiful thing about painting and portraiture is that you can offer a more intimate part of somebody Um in a way that's different from photography. Mm-hmm. So I knew just that, but I I didn't want to go in there with too many kind of um, preconceived notions or ideas because I wanted to meet her first and just feel her energy and then kind of take it from there and like let it happen organically. So once I found out, that was like July 2016, and once I found out in September, um, then I really started to like pull different looks that I liked offline and I made a folder and I sent some of them to her stylist, Meredith Coop. And we started to um, go back and forth about, you know, what I wanted. So it's like color and pattern were really important. And so she sent me 11 dresses um, and I picked out four and then we decided that we didn't want to do anything formal and so we narrowed it down to two. And one of them was um, the Millie dress. And the other one was this, it wasn't the one I wanted, actually. It was like a floral print, but it wasn't the um, the floral print that I had seen in the first image that she sent me. Because they were all things that were on the runway that season. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the designer for that one. Last night I was thinking about it, too, because I was like wondering if it was Tom Brown. But... Um, it was like really animated, but it was like her the first four years. Mm-hmm. Like the first four years, it was like the the kind of J. Crew um, skirts with belts and cardigans. And at that time, you know, when I when I think about my work personally, like it all kind of has that kind of neatness kind of feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I saw the Millie dress, I was immediately drawn to it because of the patterns on it. Um, and because they read, it, you know, they read um, European art, but they also read to me like the G's Ben Quilters was the first thing that I thought of when I saw that. And so mm-hmm. for me, that was a way to tie her into Black history without it being like, you know, super, like, I guess, didn'tic or whatever. Um, but I but I really wanted the, the, 
the floral dress first, but then like the more we got into the process of it, the more I realized that that Millie dress was like the perfect dress. And so she showed up to be photographed and I decided to only photograph her in that one. And I just nixed the other one. Go back for a moment to, cause we went a little fast through yeah. having the conversation yeah. to them saying, okay, it's you. Yeah. I mean, did they call you? Um, the Kim say it from the National Portrait Gallery called me and said, "What are you? Can you sit? Are you sitting down?" <laughs> <laughs> and I was like standing there with paintbrushes in my hand because I was working because I had a deadline. And they told me, and for some reason, I tend to be very underreactive in situations that I should be overreactive. So I was like, "Okay, that's cool. That's cool. I'm glad she chose me." <laughs> <laughs> and I sat down for a second and I picked my dog up. And I was like, your mom's going to be famous, you know? <laughs> like I had a moment, but I never really had one of those like, ee! like people jump up and down screaming. Yeah. I never had one of those. But I did have a few moments in the car like that year because I had to say a secret for it. was supposed to say a, stay a secret up until the unveiling, but somebody leaked it. But it had to stay a secret for a year and a half. Um, I had moments in the, you know how you're like, you just living your life and all of a sudden you feel everything that you've accomplished in your life in like five second span and it makes you tear up, but then it goes away as quickly as it came. Yeah, It's kind of like that, you know, where I allowed, I don't, I don't want to say I allowed myself to feel it, but like it would leave, it would become present in my emotional space. I could be sitting at a red light or something and it would just, I would feel the gratefulness of like having a heart, beating in my body that belongs to another woman, mm. having this opportunity and recognizing that this, like I'm living my dreams, you know? And so all those like moments of gratitude, like I would have those moments of gratitude about being chosen. And what that meant for me was like just the opportunity to give back, you know, which is like really important to me. So um, just being able to pay it forward. But I never was like, oh, my God. You know, I was just like, I'm just not that person. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. 
Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. So when you look at science fiction, they talk a lot about the year 2020. A lot of people predicted that by now we would be in the future, teleporting to work or living on Mars. Where's my jetpack? I don't have a jetpack and none of us do. Maybe Elon Musk does, but a lot of predictions about the future were wrong. Usually predictions about the future are wrong. They say, if you want to make God laugh, make a plan. So we never really know what's going to happen in the future. So that's why you need to get life insurance right. That's where Policy Genius can help. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers and find the best price. You can save $1,500 or more a year using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. And once you apply, they handle all the paperwork and the red tape. They make it easy. And they can also help you find the right home or auto insurance or disability insurance, whatever you need. And when you have the right insurance, you can sleep well at night knowing if the future happens, you'll be covered. You'll be taken care of. So if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become scientific fact, don't get discouraged. Get life insurance. It takes care of you and your family. God forbid something happens. And it just takes just a few minutes to find the best price and apply at policygenius.com. Policy Genius, because we always get the future wrong, so we got to get life insurance right. If you love Torrey's show and you miss the days of me talking about politics on MSNBC, and really, who doesn't, then check out my other podcast, Democracy-ish, where I sit with Danielle Moody-Mills and argue and strategize about the 2020 race from a black and progressive perspective. The way in which fucking media failed Mm -mm. this past weekend, Mm -mm. some of the most reputable outlets to some of the trashiest ones, they all fucking failed. You can find Democracy-ish wherever podcasts are streamed. All right, back to Torre show. I think when something nice happens to me, you have that moment of excitement, but you, and I think I can also be under reactive in the mm-hmm. same way, but then you also have that moment of responsibility. That's where, yeah, I'm also like, that kicks in. Holy crap, I got to do this and I got to be good at this and oh, yeah. wow, this is a lot. I was like, like oh shit, black Twitter. <laughs> And what if Black Twitter hates it? Were you really yeah, thinking about yeah. Black Twitter? Black Twitter's mean, man. <laughs> black Twitter don't like you. You need to like you're, you're move to problem. another country. <laughs> I mean, suddenly this. I mean, I've done 
you know, a thousand paintings and this is the one everyone will see and will judge me on and mm-hmm. like. Yeah. So you feel the pressure. You do. Because everybody loves her. Literally the whole world loves her. Yeah. So it's like trying to make the perfect painting of Jesus. <laughs> it's, should it be black? She, should it be white? Should it be tan? She, you know, it's like. She's bigger than Jesus. She's bigger than Jesus. Exactly. So you gave her. Let me say it this way. The day the paintings were unveiled, yeah, my mom called. She did not know you. She's, she loves the art world. She did not know you. And she said, mm, I don't like the color of Michelle Obama's skin. Yeah. And I was like, Mom, that's what Amy Cheryl does. And she's like, mm, I don't like it. And yeah. I'm like, a lot of people did. A lot of, I would say so, a lot of black people didn't. Right. right. <laughs> so, so take me back to now I'm conceiving this. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna go with my skin choice. That's why she chose me. I didn't force that on her. She <laughs> she knew that you were gonna give her that gray black. Absolutely. That's why I did you talk about that choice specifically? You were yeah, like, Yeah, it wasn't even a real conversation. It was like, I like your work and I want you to be the one to paint me. And I'm like, well, this is how I paint. She's like, that's what we want. You know, like that's 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 why. The painting is hanging in the National Portrait Gallery. I mean, I think that's why my work is what it is. I mean, it's like I do I do Amy Sherald and I and if if she didn't want me to paint her that way, then I would have been like, I'm really sorry, but I can't take this job. Okay. Did you think about well, what is black Twitter, black America, black whatever gonna say? They're like, this You know, is not I forgot realistic. I forgot in that moment. I didn't think if they didn't like it, I didn't think it was going to be about the gray skin. I thought it would be about like, you know, the dress or something, you know, like anything. But I forget there's people out there that don't know anything about the art world. And, you know, I should have remembered because I had this one experience where I was doing this mural on um, a public housing building in Baltimore. And I had to meet with the you know, like the building community leaders, like there were some elders in the building and they wanted to have some say so what was on their building. And when they saw my paintings, one of them was a was a painting of this older black gentleman. He had on a seersucker suit with a bow tie and he had a rabbit and a fedora. And it reminded this, he, I mean, he must've been like 67 or 70. He was offended by it because it made him think of minstrels. And so it's like we have different ways of seeing ourselves based on like how we're seen in the world. And his granddaughter looked, he's like, well, my granddaughter looked at it and she thought it was beautiful, but she's also not carrying the same baggage. You know, so it's like, mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be like some kind of issues like that. But I, I know that everybody is not familiar with conceptual art. And there's work like my friend Jefferson Penders that, you know, in the art world is fantastic. And um, he had a piece hanging in like a corporate lobby somewhere and like a FedEx um, driver came in to make a delivery. She was offended by it. And it was like, you know, he's a black artist and this is a uh, a black person. And so, you know, I wasn't thinking about that though. I don't know why I wasn't, but I wasn't thinking about the skin part because I'm like, what's the big deal about the skin? But um, I got like one email I got, this woman was like, we had a first we had our first black lady and we couldn't even have a painting, have her painted as a black woman. But I'm like, she is painted as a black woman. Yeah. You know, so it's just. 
I mean, hers- you just got to be ready. I mean, because like what this man thought was art, what he wanted me to paint on the side of that building was like the black man holding the world in his hands and a black woman. You know what I mean? Like that's not. I mean, like, her we gotta skin get- color has meant a lot to a lot of people. Yeah. Right. To see a light skinned man choose a darker woman mm-hmm. um, has meant a lot to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You didn't lighten her. Mm-mm. But I think for some folks, like my mom, we're like, but that's not her color. I'm yeah. like, so what? She's I like, get it. but that matters to me. And I'm like, yeah. But then, you know, I think there's, it's generational, it's it is. art, it's so much. I mean, it's subjective. Mm-hmm. It's subjective. It is. But, when um, you showed it to her, mm-hmm. are you nervous? Or are you like, I nailed I this? I wasn't there. Like, they, they sent her an image of it, and then, um, Dorothy Moss um, texted me back and she said, Michelle said, congratulations, you did it. So I was like, I'm good. After that, I'm like, I'm good. She (laughs) likes it because it wouldn't have been, you know, it wouldn't have been unveiled if she didn't like it. And Mm. just like Kahende, like Kahende finishes, I think way before I finished mine. And so they emailed it to them. Michelle was like, it needs to be redone because it's, it doesn't show any of Kahende's style, and we they thought it was like too conservative or something like that. So he got to do he did a second painting of, of Barack because of that. So like if they didn't like it, it wouldn't be out there. Because they didn't think if it was, she didn't feel like it fully represented her, it wouldn't be out there. Because mm, it didn't represent him enough, Kahende enough. Kahende, and I want to say that. For some reason, I'm under the impression that I might be making this up, though, but that he might have had a tie on and he he wanted to do it without a tie. Mm. But don't quote me on that. But how thoughtful of like, it's not about us. It's about yeah, you. Yeah, because we did told you. It's you. like they, they chose us for a reason. They chose us because there's like this break in history right now. Yes. And everybody needs to know this happened, you know, and these portraits have to be as special as the moment because they may not ever happen again. You know, so it's so that was really important. Um, also really important to your life. Mm-hmm. You have another woman's heart. I do. Kristen, What's her name? Kristen Lynn Smith. How did she die? Of a heroin overdose. And you needed a heart for ten years. Yeah, the way yeah, I was diagnosed with heart failure when I was thirty, so my heart function was eighteen percent. But with transplantation, you. You can't be placed on a list until you're literally about to die and you have to be hospitalized. So you live with a weak heart for as long as you possibly can. And then if you're lucky, you get one. So I just say I was really lucky I got one. There's people, I had a friend who just died waiting on her second heart transplant. She got one when she was 16 and it was time for her to get another one. She was like 34, 35 and she didn't make it. So it's really, you know... You're not living. You're not living with that while you're waiting. You're kind of like in this really pleasant place of denial, like everything's gonna work out. But afterwards, I was like, wow, like I'm very lucky that this worked out. That I was in the state that I was in in Maryland. That I was in the hospital that I was in, and that um, they hadn't they hadn't changed the rules. They've changed the rules since then. They make it even harder for people to get organs now. Like your organs, your your other organs have to be breaking down. Like organ, you have to be an organ failure. And then they put you in the hospital. So then by the time you get a heart, you're like half dead, which for me, I think the reason why I'm doing so well is because I was like, I was at 5% heart function, but my other organs were fine. Somehow my body compensated. 
And so you get the heart and then it's easier to recover when you're not like mm, falling apart, frail and like, you know, so, but yeah. So when you're at 18 or 10 or 5%, yeah. I mean, you can't, can't just breathe. go have a normal day. No, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was walking around because I was an athlete my whole life at 18%. I was still like doing light exercises. What was your sport? Track, long distance running, weightlifting. Like, so. Like marathons or like cross I was training for triathlons. Triathlons. And then I had to stop. So like the day before I got diagnosed, I had run like 15 miles, but I didn't know anything was wrong. So, you know, basketball players or athletes, they just like drop dead. The heart stops. I remember Because nobody knows they have heart failure. Mm-hmm. It would I would have been one of those people. But I pushed to get an examination before I was going to do this like big race. And then I found out randomly that I had heart failure, but I didn't have any symptoms. How many triathlons have you done? I haven't done any. I didn't get a chance to. <laughs> you were training for the first one. Yeah. Yeah. I've been training for two years. You could swim. Yeah. I learned how to swim. <laughs> I like can't you learn swim. how to swim as a you learn how to swim as a kid, but like I learned how to like swim swim where you're like, you know, you're turning your head like two sides. And right. Yeah. Right. You're really comfortable in the water. No, I still can't. It's My mom terrible. can't either. <laughs> it's terrible. But you gotta learn. I know. And I'm telling my kids, the, you got to learn. And they're like, but you don't know how to swim. And I'm like, shut up. Yeah. Get in the water. <laughs> yeah, I was just in Barbados. And my the driver that we had there was telling us that they just throw the kids in the water. Mm, <laughs> it's like, I learned how to swim because they just pushed me out the boat. So now you're at 100%. Yeah. Well, see, even- 70%. Like, nobody's heart beats at 100%. Okay. Yeah, that's what I learned, too. So will you need another one if you live to a certain age? Hopefully not. They don't really have, they know that I think it's like, it may last at minimum 20 years. That's if you don't get any rejection. Like I could walk out of here tomorrow and my body could be like, hell no, we don't want this in in us anymore. And then I would end up in the hospital and I could need another one tomorrow. Or it just could last the way it has been, knock on wood, that, you know, I may need one when I'm 65. I don't know. You just never know. But you have a very zen attitude about this. I mean, yeah. this is the loosest you've been. I'm good all with day. my life. <laughs> I'm good with my life. Like if I die tomorrow, I'm still good with my life. Like the only reason I don't want to leave is because I gotta be here and take care of my niece mm. and my dog. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I'm in love now for the first time. Right. So that's amazing. Right. Found love later in life. Yeah. And now you're all up in it. It's great. L- later love is great. It's like no bullshit. <laughs> you said you were catching up for lost time in terms of like, I want to spend all my time with him because yeah. he's later love. And then I was like, okay, we're not having kids, you know, because I was like 40 and single. So I'm like, it's not going to happen. And I was fine with that. And then you meet your person and you're like, damn it, I'm going to have a fucking baby with you now. And so, but then you're like 46 and you have like two over, you know, like no, no eggs. <laughs> so then, you know, so then the creative process starts, um, which is obviously complicated for me because I've had a transplant. So I can't, I can carry a child, but it's like high risk. So we're trying to figure out like adoption or like egg donor, which is weird. That's, I thought I was okay with it until a couple of weeks ago I went online just to like look. You know, you can like partially register to the websites and they send you um, 
they like, it's like match.com. It's like, yeah. there's like a list of women and their, you know, like their education level, their height, their temperament and stuff like that. And like, nobody's good enough to be me. You know what I mean? I'm like, you're not tall enough. You're not smart enough. I don't like your nose. Like, you know, cause I got to look at this kid. And it's just weird. I'm like, right. okay, I don't know where this egg donor thing's gonna work out. Cause like I gotta find the perfect version of myself. Right. I want the person to have my hair color at least and like partially, you know, partially look like me. She has to be at least 5'10. <laughs> and so I don't I don't know. It got weird like real fast with that. It got weird real fast. Tell me about being a rapper or wanting to be a rapper. I still wanna be a rapper. You still wanna be a rapper? I don't do think I bars? do. You have bars. I was like a fake rapper because I want. You remember Boss? Yes. I wanted to be like Detroit. Boss. Yeah. yeah, she was dope. Yeah. Yeah. And I so you remember her. the Highland Place her. Mobsters? Yeah. Remember Dallas's group, the Highland no, Place no. Mobsters? No. They were, they were like his first band, and I used to hang out with this guy that was in the band called Chip. His name was Chip, and uh, Fletcher, and so I was like a freshman in college. Like, went to a Catholic school, listened to Ice Cube. I, I blame Ice Cube on the fact that I even curse now to this day <laughs> because of that song, Fuck the Police. Fuck the police. He's like, police, it a dick straight up. You know why? I got jacked just the other night. It was like that song and I memorized <laughs> it. I was 19 years old and everything. I've had a potty mouth ever since then. <laughs> but yeah, the rap thing didn't work out because my mom was like, what are you talking about guns for? You don't have one. <laughs> You know, <laughs> my name was the gold digger. The gold digger. Yeah, it's like, I'm a gold digger, a bitch killer. <laughs> I wouldn't hesitate to pull the trigger on a motherfucking pussy nigga. <laughs> it didn't even what sound else? right what coming else? out of my me, mouth. Give me, give me some more. I can't. Yeah, Wait, you got more. What is it? Um, well, you see, I'm dope. I'm smooth. My lyrics come fatal. I'm kind of like that bitch from the hand that rocks the cradle because I'm rough. I'm rugged. I'm scandalous. I grab my Glock when I need to go and handle it. <laughs> Niggas try to step to me. They get to stretch it. I'm down with the basic and can't forget my nigga Fletcher because I'm making hits like I'm making coffee. Never hesitate to say back the fuck up off me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off me. Stupid. Wow. I'm making hits like I'm making, making coffee. coffee. Back the fuck that was, off me. That's what's up. That was the 18s. That's what's up. <laughs> that was stupid. And mom was like, <laughs> mom was like, what? No. Yeah, no. 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 I, could, I couldn't have done it anyway. Because you wanted to be a painter from early. I did, yeah. From when? To, uh, as long as I can remember. Really? Yeah. This was always the dream? It was always something that was inside of me. It was weird. It's like, I don't know what else I would have been. Like, it was either that or I would have been like Mashama Bailey. I would have been a chef. Mm. You know, those, mm. those two things are only things that really resonated with me. It was like cooking and, and painting. But those weren't things that black parents born in the 1930s could like imagine their children doing. Cooking and painting? Yeah. Mm. It's like, no, my mom was like, you want to do what? Like, what does that even mean? Like, you want to be an artist. And so, you know, at 84, she still doesn't quite, she doesn't know my world, you know what I mean? So if I said, like, yeah, I, the Whitney bought one of my paintings, she'd be like, Whitney Houston? Like, she doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't get it, you know? She doesn't understand that people pay a lot of money for paintings and that it's like a cultural legacy. And, you know, she just, um, she's just relieved that I will be financially stable. That's yeah. all she ever really cared about. Yeah. Is that, you know? So... 
how do you feel about the the overall uh, art business structure in mm-hmm. terms of X collector buys your painting off the wall from Hauser and Worth? You what percentage of that do you get? Industry cut is fifty fifty. Oh wow! Yeah. I think unless you're like Jeff Koons, I think because his work sells for like a jillion dollars, I feel like at that point, you can be like, it's going to be 70, 30. Or, <laughs> 70, you know. 30. So you you give half to your gallery? Mm-hmm. Is that worth it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you're with the right gallery, yeah. Because they do all the work. Yeah. They're, they're working for it. They're, if you're like- if They're you're working like with, for it like half? Like, like you're working for it. Yeah. Well, they're the ones paying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for like a booth at our Basel. You know what I mean? Mm. Like they have access to those collectors, like the, the the high level collectors. And I guess you could kind of run, you could probably sell out of your studio, but I also feel like that that you would hit a ceiling at some point. Like you kind of need, in order for your market value to increase to, you know, the hundreds of thousands of millions, you kind of need that gallery brand and validation. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey. This episode is brought to you by visit Williamsburg in Williamsburg, Virginia. There's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What, what does it cost to get Amy Sherald now? I can't say that. <laughs> we cannot say that. Okay, but okay, we can figure it out. But then if that collector sells it to somebody else, yeah. you get none of Nada. That. But it raises the value of the next work you're going to do. Well, scarcity creates value. Mm-hmm. Um. And the reason why paintings can be sold for so much is because there's only one. Mm-hmm. But if I produced a hundred paintings a year, they would be less expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so, there, so there's an there's an art business choice to making ten a year. No, that's just I'm a slow painter. Mm. Yeah, but it but but it works it works it works for me because um, I do I I want my production level to just be what it would be if I was doing it all myself. 
I mean, you don't, I mean, in, in terms of the art world, you could hire an assistant to paint the background and then you come in and do the face. Yeah. And like like I have people paint my backgrounds. Like that's, you know, they can just sew a canvas and paint a background color. And, you know, it's, it's impossible for me to make 13 paintings a year by myself because there's only 12 months in a year. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I need assistance to help me with the basic stuff, the stuff at the bottom, or if um, if there's a sweater that needs stuff filled in, then I need them to fill it in first so that I can come back and paint it. You know, like that's that kind of stuff just makes sense because it makes your life more efficient. And that way, as a 46-year-old woman, I'm not in the studio 12 hours a day because I was like killing myself. Mm. And it's just, it's it gets to be too much. And then you start to hate what you're doing. And I hated what I was doing. I love what I was doing, but I was like working seven days a week, 12 hours a day. I was like losing weight. And it was, you know, I was like, I would like end up in the hospital for four days, like with the flu and hadn't been around anybody with the, you know what I mean? Like your body just starts to break down. So it's good to have an assistant there um, for a number of reasons. One, because it speeds up the process because they can do the, um, the primary things that need to happen first. Two, because after a while working in your studio, gets really lonely. Like you're in there by yourself all that time. And for me, it's just like me and podcasts. And then like conversations become really awkward because like, you're like, did you hear, you know, did you hear that to Ray podcast yesterday? I was like, it never was like, uh. um, so all your references are just like strange blips. And then three, I think I enjoy making decisions. I like groupthink, you know, I think, okay. No man is a genius or woman is a genius on their own. Mm. And um, I came this far by myself, but I enjoy like talking over ideas with stuff or being like, what do you think about this? Like, how does that, even if I know the answer, I like to get feedback from other people. And so, you know, I have, and I need to, I have a fabrication manager. She does all my ordering. And then I have Kelly um, who's been my assistant for the past three years. And she's the She's like my right-hand person. And so she really helps me. I can focus on the more important things because I know that the background colors are going to get done and these basic things are going to get done so that by the, when I come to it, I can just get to the nitty-gritty of it. So does it bother you if a collector sells an Amy Sherald for a multiple of whatever they bought it for. No, I mean it happened. At, you don't get it happened at auction last year. I had a piece go to auction for the first time last year, um, and that collector had purchased it early on in 2015 for less than ten thousand dollars, and it sold at auction for over three hundred thousand dollars. So. Yeah, and I didn't get any of that, you know, but you kind of know that's going to happen. Um, and for me, it worked out well because people think that you want the work to sell for a million dollars at auction. But if your work, for example, is $100,000 and it sells for $500,000 at auction, it's $400,000 over your market value, then you can be in trouble because you have to try to to catch up to that and you, your work may not be able to sustain itself at that price. You may mm-hmm. not have the collector base, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's all kinds of ins and outs to this that, you know, 
that, you know, unless you're a collector, you don't, you don't know about, but it, you know, it is what it is, you know, like I have a great gallery. They're fantastic. And I think the split, you know, it is what it is. It's like, that's what you grew up knowing. Like you're going to give away 50% of your work. But when you have, when you're with the right gallery, you're making that much money because they're, they are who they are. So it's like, take your 50 because I could be selling for 15,000 and now I'm not, you know, so yeah. it's, you're making more than you ever would have by yourself. So what's your, let's talk about artistic advice mm-hmm. for younger portraitists. Mm-hmm. What would you tell them? Just figurative painters? Yeah. I mean, people who are like, see Amy Sherrill as a sort of North Star, oh my God, like artistically. Mm-hmm. What um, what what do you want them to know? What do you want to tell them? Um, when When artists come to me for things, I just say, you just have to keep working. Like you need to keep working. This will not happen unless you continue to work and... Um, I don't offer a lot of specific advice because I know for me, um, you're going to grow if you keep working. The things that need to happen in your work are going to happen if you keep working. So the key is to keep working and set up your life so that you can keep working. And that's all that I like to say. And I used to get frustrated when I would come to older artists for advice and they would tell me the same thing but I get it now. It's like, you can't tell me how to make work. That's going to make me famous. You can't tell me like you, you can't, you can't show a person that like either they're going to have it or they're not. But the best advice I've ever gotten was that I need to keep working Mm. and not, not quit when I got frustrated, not quit when being poor wasn't cute, not let things get in the way. Like for me, like no relationships, no children. Like I was just like hyper-focused on what I had to do. And like, that was it. It's amazing that you were able to maintain the focus on your dream when like people are not buying the work, the, the, the personal life is not going anywhere. Right. You're like the bank account is like Mm -hmm. in the red. Mm -hmm. What in that moment, and it wasn't a moment, (laughs) what in that period of your life led you to say just, just keep going you just know like there's something inside of me that just know that i just knew right so i'm not like i'm not a that religious it person or that you couldn't do anything else that i couldn't do anything else that there was something inside of me that told me that this was my destiny and i don't you know like i said i'm not a religious person but I've had these moments in my life where you hear that weird voice. And for me, it's always like a man with a deep voice. I'm not sure why, but <laughs> you hear that voice and you're like, you just know to keep pushing, you know? So like when I also, when I talk to kids, like um, my partner, Kevin makes fun of me because I had the, Micah had asked me to have some kids come to my studio one day. And like, so 40 of them piled in there and he just happened to be there. And, um, I always say this. I'm like, so there's 40 of you guys in here. And I said, one of you guys might make it. The rest of you guys won't. And he was like, <laughs> wow. and he was like, he was like, that made me feel so uncomfortable. Like you were killing dreams. And I was like, no, but there was that one kid in that crowd that was like, that shit ain't going to be me. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, and everyone else that felt defeated, they were going to be defeated in five years anyway. If, the, if my words defeated them, then they were well, never going to make it in the first place. You didn't say 
you will make it and the rest of you won't, right? It's just mm-hmm. a blanket. One of you will make, make it. it. So the one who really has the dream that won't die thinks, you know, right, maybe five of them thought, or maybe 40 of them thought, yeah. I will be the one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But that's the way, I mean, that's the way that it is. It's like you have to, you have to have that willpower. You cannot be weak. You cannot be faint of heart. Like you have to push through and you have to be smart. And it's not some magical moment where somebody finds you on the street. It's like there's a strategy to this and you pay attention to art history. You pay attention to what work is out there now and you look for what what art history needs. And I think like, that's, that's what I know I did. It's like, I was looking around trying to figure out what I wanted to make as an artist. And I couldn't figure out what that was. The work that I made in grad school sucked. It was just like bad. And so I knew I had to figure out what I was going to make. And it took me two years to figure it out. But I had an epiphany one day that at that point in 2009, there were, I hadn't seen any paintings of black people just being black. And like, that's, I was like, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, that's the voice I'm going to be in this conversation of all these different artists. This is, this is what I'm going to add to it, you know? And it was kind of around, when did you write your book post-black? 20, it came out 2012. And so it was kind of, yeah, it wasn't around. So like, what was I doing in 2012? I was getting a heart transplant in 2012. But I think for me, reading your book was also an affirmation for me that I was kind of moving in the right direction. You know, as many conversations were being had around like the terminology of post-black, I was like, there's, that's how complicated black is, is that there can be a post, like there's no post Chinese or anything like that, but that's how complicated it is. It's like, it's so crazy that, that word can even exist, you know, that term can even exist post-black, but there's something to it. You know what I mean? There's something to it because black is something that is technically it's, it's a construction, you know? So we're trying to deconstruct here with, with, without losing who we are, if that makes sense. I mean, so many people have just not read the book and taken it like I was saying post-racial which is not yeah no at it's all absolutely no such thing as that no. yeah um, yeah I felt like there was a construction that was forced upon us by certain people perhaps the older generation perhaps certain members of our generation and there is a large group of us who is saying no I want to perform or embody blackness differently and yeah. I'll do it my way and I'm not going to go for the conventions and yeah. the strictures and the traditional ways that you did it I want to do it with more whatever it is. And um, and I think a lot of people heard what I was saying and I think a lot of people misunderstood it as well. And like, mm-hmm. you know, you live with that. Yeah. Well, I thought it was genius. So, so I was like, this is, cause that's what I'm like, this is where it's at. Like, this is how we, you, you can't, um, you can't evolve as a person if you're constantly in a reactionary space. You can't be present inside of yourself. And we need to be present inside of ourselves in order to really think our way through all of these, like our historical presence in this day and time. I mean, it's just so, everything, it felt it felt really complicated. But for me, that was a way to simplify it was to just be like, you know, let's just start with the basics of who we are and then bring in the rest. What has having money afforded you? 
Um, a self-esteem. Really? <laughs> you feel different when you have money. People are lying if they say they don't. Because um, I feel like I feel like I'm fine no matter what now. You know what I mean? Like even if my boyfriend broke up with me, I'm like, I'm fine because I got money. You know, it's like <laughs> you can make yourself like fine. I'll just like go on vacation a lot. I won't be sad. I'll go to Barbados and sit on the beach because I got money. You know, so it's it it makes you feel I feel like I just feel safer. I feel better in life. Um, I do feel a responsibility as um as a black person, you know, I feel like if I get money, then like along this journey, I got to figure out how I can make this, how I can make this work for my community as well. I feel a little bit irresponsible to have money, to be honest, because like you still don't know how to, you know, it's like I've, I've met with like financial advisors or whatever. And they're like telling me like what we were talking about, like financial planning and that kind of stuff. And they have this vocabulary. Like, I have no idea what they're talking about yet. Oh, no. So I'm like, man, I'm 46. Like, I feel so stupid. Like, I should know this already. Mm. But it's like, I never had any money to know it already. So it's like, <laughs> you're just trying to figure it out. Um, But I, I mean, I, I'm excited to have money. I'm excited I can pay back my school loans. Like the real stuff is I'm excited I can pay back my school loans. I am excited that I don't... If I see something now, I can buy it and I don't have to stress out about it. You know what I mean? Like five years ago, I bought a pair of Stuart Weitzman boots for $700 on a credit card and I literally didn't sleep for 30 days. But like I wanted to do something nice for myself because I was like, I'm busting my ass. I'm not making any money yet. And like, I want these boots. And so I got them. But now I can just like get them and not stress about it. You know, I can give money to my mom, I can, you know, I took her out of the country for the first time for her birthday. She's you, 84. That was amazing. You did, you detailed it on Instagram. Yeah. It was like amazing <laughs> to see And it's you like, too. so those are the gifts. Like that's, that's the only reason why I've actually wanted money. Like really wanted it was because the times that my family could not fend for themselves and my father having died when I was, 28 mm. and then my brother dying when he was 36 mm. and whether it be because I'm the tallest person in the family it's like or the strongest is my sister my mom myself and my niece so now I'm the sole provider for my family and it stressed me out that I was like pursuing this career that allowed me to have no financial flexibility when I needed to because I you know I was waiting tables so I could like pick up a shift to like you know, send money home if I needed to or whatever. But um, you don't, you can't help anybody but yourself. And that always bothered me. And so for me, it's like just, it's a huge relief to be like, look, mom, you're going to be fine now. Like if you need help with your insurance, you need help with your bills, like I got you and you can relax. And that's the biggest blessing. Like that's, that's it. Like just being able to help people. You sound like a rapper. I got my yeah, mom. I got my mom. You take I do care but then everybody got their hands out too, though. So like that's 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 hard. That's weird. That's hard. That's weird. Yeah. How do you say no? Um. They people have all asked for less than a thousand dollars, so I haven't said no. <laughs> but I but I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out how to handle that. You don't say no. Can I, can I get nine hundred? I said, <laughs> I said no once. I did say no once. Um, 
I have this theory um, that deep down, everybody, or almost everybody, is either scared or angry or sad. Mm. Or some combination of those three. But if we get to like the bottom of your emotional well, you're not like, yay, happy, joy, joy. But you're like either scared or angry or sad. Mm -hmm. Does that fit for you? Yeah. So like, okay, maybe it's scared now. Maybe it's scared now. I'm scared every time I come to New York now. Except like I got <laughs> like I feel like for the next ten years I gotta be careful of my life because terrorists are gonna come get me or something like that. <laughs> I'm like uh Sumani's daughter's gonna come. I don't know. But those are things that I'm scared of. Like I have very practical fears of like I don't I don't ride on the subway at nine o'clock in the morning, five o'clock at night. Like I live my life to try to avoid crowds and explosives. I don't, you know, I'm scared oh, of oh, really you're scared of terrorists. I'm scared of random acts of violence. Yes, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to die that way. <laughs> like, there's ways I'm okay dying, and there's ways I'm not okay dying. And like, that's not one of them. You know what I mean? Yes. I think about those things. Yes. I'm always looking for an exit. Like, if I go into a restaurant, I'm looking around, and I'm like, okay, if somebody comes in here shooting, and there's a mass shooter. Which way am I going to run? Or should I just go under the table? You know what I mean? Like, I'm always preparing myself for that kind of stuff now. So ask, maybe it is scared. I don't know. I always ask everyone toward the end, what is your superpower? What is the thing that has helped propel you to the success that you have had? Um, I'm a realist. Can that be a superpower? Sure. I think just because I'm a realist. Yeah. Like my sister calls me the Dalai Lama because Why? any situation I come into, if there's hostility, I'm able to um, mediate it so that everybody's okay. I can make everybody okay. Like I know how to make people okay. Maybe that's the superpower. It's just like I can make it situations okay. You're arguing with your wife, I can make it okay. Your dog needs a leg, I can make it okay. Like whatever it is. <laughs> But I think just because I'm a, a realist, I guess. Thanks so much to Amy for an awesome interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. Join us at patreon.com slash Show for exclusive episodes. And find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. And our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing guest and on Friday because the man can't shut us down. <laughs> <laughs>